This morning we're beginning a new series, a series of four sermons in the book of Haggai. So if you have a Bible, go ahead and turn with me to Haggai. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one under your chair or the chair next to you. If you're using those Bibles under your chairs, we're going to be on page 791. Page 791 for Haggai. If you're not using one of those Bibles under your chairs, I can't tell you what page number Haggai is on, but trust me, it's in there. And there's no shame in using the table of contents, okay? If you don't know where Haggai is, you are not alone, okay? This is a little-known, short book of the Bible. But while it's a short, little-known book, it has a powerful and always relevant message for us about keeping first things first, about what is most important in life. What, life can get complicated easily. Oliver Wendell Holmes once said that the chief work of civilization is just that it makes the means of living more complex. As civilization develops, as life uh, multiplies, the, the ability to do more things increases, but so does the demand to do more things. So there's snail mail, there's email now, there's Twitter, there's Facebook, there's status updates, there's family to keep in touch with, but you maybe moved somewhere else and there's new relationships to keep in touch with and other relationships to keep up with. There's your work life, there's your social life, there's your family life, there's your vacations, there's your travel, there's add it up, add it up, add it up, and life starts to get really messy and you always feel like you have way more on your plate than you can possibly handle. Alongside this development, some desire for simplicity makes sense. And this, this is happening in our world. Uh, Marie Kondo wrote a book, The Life-Changing Power of Tidying Up, and it was the number two bestseller on Amazon in 2015. It's still a top 20 seller on Amazon. There is a National Association of Professional Organizers that has thousands of members. In any blog or website or magazine that you read, you'll probably find countless tips for how to tidy up and declutter your lives. In a 2015 op-ed in the New York Times, David Brooks points out, it's easy to see what today's simplifiers are throwing away. It's not always clear what they are for. It's not always explicit what rightly directed life they envision. So decluttering is all well and good, but the question is, what do you want to make space for? What can you really afford to just get rid of and throw away And what do you actually want to give your life to? Well, to be able to answer that question, you have to know what's most important. To be able to keep first things first, you have to know first what is first. And that's what this short book of Haggai is going to address. What is first? What is most important? And what can you afford to just get rid of? The book of Haggai records events that take place over a 15-week period in 520 BC. At this time, it's, it's written to the people of Israel, which is the main nation that God dealt with and revealed himself to before the coming of Christ. And just before the book of Haggai is written, and just before the events it records take place, something significant happened in Israel's history that you have to understand if you're going to understand Haggai. The people of Israel were attacked by a foreign enemy, their temple was destroyed, and they were carried out of their land and into captivity. Now that's significant because the temple was so significant to the people of Israel. The temple was the place where God promised to meet with his people. It was the place where relationship with God happened, where the people served the Lord and enjoyed God's presence. And yet, that temple had been destroyed when Israel was conquered. Years later, by God's providence, the Persian Empire 
conquered the people that had conquered Israel. And the Persians, again by God's providence, actually sent Israel back into the land. So by the time we get to Haggai, the Israelites have returned to Jerusalem, their capital city. And when they returned, they did start rebuilding the temple. They started to rebuild the altar where sacrifices were offered. They laid the foundation. But shortly after they got into it, they experienced opposition from the people around them, and then even from the Persian government. And their efforts of building the temple stopped. And 16 years have now elapsed where the people have busied themselves with other things and have not given attention to the house of God, to God's temple. They busied their lives. They cluttered their lives with other things. And we too are prone to clutter our lives with things that are less important. And anytime we do that, anytime we cease letting first things be first, we're left in the same position they were left in, empty. Into this situation, Haggai, the prophet, the messenger of the Lord, speaks. And this is the message he speaks that we're going to look at today. Now is the time to build God's house. And he's going to give three reasons why now is the time to build God's house. First, you have time. Second, you don't have fullness. And third, God is worthy. So look with me at Haggai chapter 1. I'm going to read aloud verses 1 through 11 of Haggai chapter 1. In the second year of Darius the king, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet to Zerubbabel the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Thus says the Lord of hosts, These people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses, while this house lies in ruins? Now, therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them into a bag with holes. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house, that I may take pleasure in it and that I may be glorified, says the Lord. You looked for much, and behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why, declares the Lord of hosts, because of my house that lies in ruins, while each of you busies himself with his own house. Therefore the heavens above you have withheld the dew, and the earth has withheld its produce. And I have called for a drought on the land and the hills, on the grain, the new wine, the oil, on what the ground brings forth, on man and beast, and on all their labors. So first reason that now is the time to build God's house, you have time. God begins by dealing with the reason, the defense, examining the defense of the people of Israel for why they have not built the house of the Lord. And the reason they give in verse 2 is that the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. 16 years have passed, and their answer for 16 years for why they have not rebuilt the house of the Lord is that the time has not yet come. Well, what does God think of this defense? He responds to it in verse 4. He says, if the last 16 years haven't been the time to build the house of the Lord, what have they been the time for? They haven't just disappeared, right? Like they, they've been there. They've used that time on something. And God exposes it in verse 4. He says, Is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? In other words, instead of building God's house, the people spent the 16 years building their own houses. 
And in fact, we read here that they even had paneled houses, so they, they made some home improvements, right? Saying, you, you had 16 years, you didn't build my house, but not only did you build your own house, you added a roof deck, you redid the kitchen, and you put in another bathroom, right? Now, at first glance, this is somewhat reasonable, because the people of Israel returned to the land, and they didn't have houses, right? Their land had been destroyed, And so they start rebuilding the temple, but then they sense this opposition from the people around them. And they're probably just dwelling in tents at this point. So if you're just dwelling in tents, and you're starting to sense that the people around you don't like you very much, you're probably not going to feel very secure going to bed at night in your tent, knowing that there's enemies just outside of you. So they said, look, we're going to get around to building God's house. And they acknowledge that, right? They say, it's not yet time. We know we should do it. We know it's going to happen. But now's not the time. So we're going to do it at some point, but first things first, right? We have to take care of our safety. Why shouldn't we look after our personal security, build ourselves some houses, and once we get these things taken care of, we'll build the house of the Lord? Except that day never seems to come, right? They build their own houses, and now it's, well, you know, once we add some paneling, once, once we take care of business here, then we can go on building other things. It does seem reasonable, right? And yet God rebukes it. God comes and says, no, it's not reasonable. Why? Well, consider the importance of God's house. Remember I said earlier, the temple was the place where relationship with God happened. It was the place where the people served God and enjoyed his presence. It's totally reasonable to seek your basic necessities, right? And they say safety is one of our necessities. But to do so without building the house of God suggests that God himself is not one of those necessities. That my life would be okay if I had a house, even if it meant I had no active relationship with God, that I didn't know him, that I didn't serve him, and that I didn't enjoy his presence. That is basically what these people were saying. God's nice, but he's not a need. I have more basic needs that I need to take care of. It's not outright rebellion, right? Building a house is not a bad thing, right? God's not rebuking that. Not even making home improvements, okay? It's, go for it if you want to. You know, that, that, There's nothing inherently wrong in what they're doing. But Augustine defined sin as disordered love. It's that they're taking a good thing and they're making it an ultimate thing. They're saying, this is the thing that I really need and God himself is something of an afterthought. It also conveys a distrust in God. Like, why did they think that a better option for being safe was building their own houses than trusting God himself? Like, houses are better than tents, right? Like, they they probably are safer. But houses get broken into all the time. And storms can come in and tear the paneling right off your house. God is the one who controls every storm. And God is the one who, when all the nations, all the armies of the earth, array themselves against him, Psalm 2 says he sits in the heavens and he laughs at them. More powerful than any army, more powerful than any storm, And yet, the people say, what we really need is a house. It's not outright rebellion, but it's disordered love. And God sees that as a rebellion. He sees it as a rejection of him. And what he's saying is, they didn't have a time issue. They had a love issue. They had a trust issue. The thing they really loved, the thing they really trusted in, was their houses and their comfort. Not bad things, but disordered things that had taken the proper place of God in their lives. And if you find that you don't have time to serve the Lord and enjoy his presence. You don't have a time issue. You have a love issue, and you have a trust issue. 
The thing we all know about time is that we all have the same amount of it. It's a resource unlike any other. There's differences in how talented you are. There's differences in how much money you have. There's differences in the skills, opportunities, and training that you're entrusted with. But a lot of you in this room, I don't even know. But I know one thing about you. You have 24 hours in a day. You have seven days in a week. You have 52 weeks in a year. You have time. I have time. We're using it on something. So what is it? You're already giving your time to what you really love and what you really trust to keep you safe. What is it? For me, I always manage to find time to work, to exercise, to play fantasy sports, to watch sports, and to read. Why? Because I love those things. And because some part of me is even afraid that if I cut those things out of my life, if I stop doing them, that I might not be okay. What is it for you? If the thing that you love and trust is your career, you will spend your time building that. If what you love and trust is your money, you will spend your time building that. If what you love and trust is a relationship, you will spend your time dating. If what you love and trust is your appearance, you will spend your time exercising. Run through it. Look at what you give your time to. It'll reveal what you trust. What do you fill in these blanks with? Yes, I want God to be part of my life, but what I really need is blank. What about this one? But I couldn't give up blank to serve the Lord and enjoy his presence. The people were saying, yes, the house needs to be built. Yes, we want God to be part of our lives. What we really need, what we really need to give our time to is something else. Whatever it is, whatever you fill those blanks in with, it will not leave you full. And that's the next point we're going to turn to. You don't have fullness. The second reason that now is the time to build God's house. God continues in this passage speaking to the Israelites. And he says, after confronting their defense in verse 4. Now, therefore, consider your ways. He's saying, think about the things you have given your time to. Again, the last 16 years, they didn't go nowhere. Consider their outcome. How's it gone? Is that really working for you? And speaking to an agrarian people, this is what he points out in verse 6. You have sown much and harvested little. Your reward has not matched the work that you've put into it. They're not lazy, right? That's not the problem. And the problem for any of us isn't that we just don't have passions, that there's nothing in life that we care about. We all care about something, right? We're all driven and pursuing something. The problem is those things promise us something that they can't deliver. And so the people here are sowing and sowing and sowing, but harvesting little. And they're not impoverished either. They're not just squeaking by, right? They, they eat, right? He says, you eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. You have food, but you're never satisfied. You have drink, but you never have, you're never full. You have clothing, and yet you're still freezing. For those of you who watched the Netflix series, Stranger Things, I was picturing the upside down. You know? They're stuck in the upside down with nothing but a bathing suit and some crackers. There's something, but it's never enough. Because you're, you're in a reality that you were not created for. Have you had this experience? Have you had the experience of achieving and and sowing into something, but never quite reaching your goal? Have you had the experience of reaching your goal and getting the, the kind of buzz and the sensation that comes from that, only to see it fade over time? 
Recently, uh, the band U2 was in Philly at Lincoln Financial Field, and they celebrated 30 years of their Joshua Tree album. And uh, on that album, I'm reminded of uh, the way Bono put it, that uh, he's climbed these city walls only to be with you, but he still hasn't found what he's looking for. Have you had that feeling, like you've achieved even, or you've come short, but you still haven't found what you're looking for? Tom Brady, after he won his third Super Bowl in an interview, said this, Why do I have three Super Bowl rings and still feel like there is something greater out there for me? I mean, maybe a lot of people would say, Hey, man, this is what it is. I've reached my goal, my dream. But me, I think, God, it's got to be more than this. He eats, but is not full. Clothed, but is not yet warm. Many of us are kind of, in some ways, don't have enough life experience to feel this. You know, a lot of you in this room, and myself included, are still on the younger end of the spectrum. Um, But even imagine yourself in future years. You know, you still have a goal. Imagine you reach that goal. You know, go ahead and imagine what that's going to feel like. But don't think about what it's going to feel like that day. Imagine your life a year later. Imagine your life 16 years later. Did it really work? Did it really solve your most pressing problems? Did it really give you lasting satisfaction and peace that no one, no circumstance, can take away? I recently had the privilege to go on vacation, just got back Last night, my, uh, I have a relative who has a house in Maine, and so we got to go up and enjoy it. And if, if you've gotten to take vacations in your life, you know that last day can be painful, right? You're like, oh, man, i got to go back. And I like this, actually, but I'm going to go back into the church office tomorrow, and I'm just going to hate my life for the first four hours. <laughs> Usually I get over it by then, but yeah, no, it's, uh, you, you know the feeling. But I, I had to stop and think, like, would, it really just, would my life really just all come together if I had another week of this? That'd be nice, you know, like I, I enjoyed it. We had some nice scenery and it was good to rest, but no, come on. Like that, that's, that's not ultimate, right? That, that's not going to make me fool to just be able to do that for my whole life. And yet I think that way sometimes. And that you guys probably think that way sometimes too. And there's whole industries out there convincing you that that is worth giving your life to. That creating a, an eternal vacation for yourself here on earth will really satisfy you. Give your years to that. Don't build God's house. Give your years to this kind of thing, and it won't. It will only leave you empty. If you realize this, if you're really honest about it, you'll realize that in our lives on earth, we always sow much but reap little. And when you come to grips with that, you have a few options for what you can do with that. And Tim Keller helpfully summarized these for me once. He said, um, you can either blame the things, you can blame yourself, or you can blame the universe. So you can blame the things. You can say, well, if I just had a better job, if I just lived in a better location, if I just had a better spouse. And so you're always rotating, right? Different job, different friends, different spouse even, different church, different small group, whatever it may be, hoping that the next one is going to satisfy. And so you're a mile wide, but not very deep in any one place. And you find yourself kind of bored and discontent with life and just always needing to change things up and experience new adventure. You can blame the things. You can blame yourself. You can say, if only I was more disciplined, if only I could finally get it together and get on an exercise routine and get my work done and get up on time, then my life would really be full. And so you feel guilty all the time. You feel kind of this self-loathing that I'm I'm the source of my problems. Or you can blame the universe. You can say, hey, this is just as good as it gets, and we're just going to settle for life here. And I used to think of things like fullness and satisfaction, but we all know that's kind of a pipe dream. And in the real world, life's hard and you just have to learn to get on with it. But is there another option? 
Is there another way to interpret this reality of sowing much but harvesting little? God offers another interpretation. In verse 9, he explains this reality. He says, you looked for much, and behold, it came to little, right? You looked for much, and behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why? Why would God do that, declares the Lord of hosts? Because of my house that lies in ruins, while each of you busies himself with his own house. This is the last option for what you can blame. You can blame your separation from God. You can blame the fact that you're in the upside down, that you're not living in the world the way it's supposed to be because our lives are not the way they are supposed to be. You were created for something else, something bigger. And as long as we give our lives to lesser things, we will always find we sow much, but we harvest little. We eat, but we are never full. We were created, as the Westminster Shorter Catechism says, to glorify God and enjoy him forever. And as long as we're not doing that, as long as we're giving our lives to building some other house, to working on some other thing, we will always come up short. It will always leave us empty. And that's why today's efforts at simplicity, while helpful in their proper place, can't ultimately get us there. David Brooks, in his 2015 op-ed that I quoted earlier, goes on to say this. One of the troublesome things about today's simplicity movements is that they are often just alternate forms of consumption. Magazines like Real Simple are sometimes asking you to strip away your stuff so you can buy new, simpler stuff. There's a whiff of the haute bourgeois ethos here that simplification is not really spiritual or anti-materialism, just a more refined, organic, locally grown, and morally status-building form of materialism. His point being, if you're decluttering your life of stuff that doesn't satisfy, and all you're doing is adding more stuff that doesn't satisfy, that's not really going to work in the long run. You were created for something bigger. You can't declutter stuff and replace it with other stuff. You were created for the glory of God and to enjoy him forever. No matter how we try to replace it, it doesn't work. Consider your ways. Consider your ways. Consider what you're giving, your time, your resources, your energy too. How's it going? Is it really working? And consider 16 years from now. Will it really work? Will it really have delivered what it promised? If not, if it won't, don't waste the next 16 years, 16 minutes, or 16 seconds of your life on it. Now is the time to build God's house. Let it go. Declutter it. That's the stuff that you can get rid of. And what can you do? What can you declutter it to make space for? The third point is that God is worthy. He tells us in verse 8. He says, Go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house. Now is the time. What's interesting is the reason he gives. The Bible's amazing. It'll surprise you if you really let it. You know, I come to the Bible, and a lot of us do this. You come to the Bible, and you expect it to say certain things. What I expect God to say here is, hey, look, you've been giving all your time and energy to these other things that don't satisfy, and so your crops have suffered. You're not making money, that kind of thing. Build my house, and your crops will grow, and I will make you abundant, and I will bless you. And there's... Certainly the assumption of this is if they had built God's house, they would have experienced God's blessing, and we're going to see in chapter 2 that there is room for that. But it's not what God says here. 
He says in verse 8, build a house, why? That I may take pleasure in it and that I may be glorified, says the Lord. He says, do it for me. Do it for my sake, for my pleasure and for my glory. See, it would have been a total mistake for God to come to them and say, do it and I'll make your life work. Because the problem in the first place is that these people were committed to nothing bigger than making their lives work. And so if God comes in and says, hey, build the house and then I'll make your life work, he's playing right into the very thing that's caused these problems in the first place. To those false loves and false trusts that will never satisfy. He's saying, I'll help you worship the wrong things. God's not going to do that. And God won't do that in our lives either. He comes and he says, do it for my sake. In other words, it's not an invitation to religion. It's not you do for me and I'll do for you. It's not come build the house and then I'll bless you and take you to heaven. It's come build the house because I'm worthy of it. Because I'm God. It's an invitation not to get something from him, but to do something for the pleasure and the glory of God. That's what he's calling us to here. Now where does he get off doing that, right? Just build it for my sake. It's because, as he's described in this passage, he's the Lord of hosts. He's the creator of everyone and everything. And just as a child is created to enjoy the pleasure of their parents, we were created to enjoy the pleasure of our Heavenly Father. And just as a beautiful painting, a beautiful piece of architecture is worthy of praise, God in and of himself is the one being who is worthy of all praise and glory and honor. And he created the temple so that his glory would be on display. It ought to be displayed. It's fitting. It's right. It's sane. It's the way the world is supposed to be. That the one who is truly glorious, the one who is truly beautiful, the one who is truly perfect is acknowledged as such and treated in that way. He is worthy of glory and honor. But it just seems so impractical. Like, when you're sleeping in tents and you've got enemies around, doesn't it seem like there's bigger fish to fry than just, you know, making a temple so that God would be praised? What's the benefit? What's the win? And that right there is the problem. And that's the same thing that we do, right? We feel like, sure, I could serve God and enjoy his presence, but, but what's the win? What's the benefit? What's in it for me? When it comes down to it, we may want God to be some part of our lives, just as the Israelites did, but we love most deeply ourselves. And we're always wondering what's in it for us. So for God's house to be built, someone has to love his house. Someone has to love his glory more than their own interests. And when Jesus Christ comes to earth, this is how he's described. It says, The word became flesh, and dwelt among us in John 1.14. And the word there for dwelt is literally templed or tabernacled among us. It's saying in order for God's house to be built, God had to come himself as the true temple, as the true house. Remember what we said the temple was. It's the place where relationship with God happened, where humanity and God met. And Jesus Christ is the true and greater temple, the one who was fully God and truly human. And in his life on earth, guess what he never once built? A house for himself. He said, foxes have holes and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. In the stories of Jesus' life in the Gospels, there are just a few places where you see Jesus getting angry. And they're noteworthy because anger always reveals what you love. 
And one of the times when Jesus gets angry is when there's people doing business at the temple, turning it into a money-making machine. And it says there, the reason he got angry is because zeal for his father's house consumed him. He loved his father's house because he loved his father's glory. And when his father's house was not taken care of, it made him angry. In fact, he loved his father's house so much that he walked up a different hill carrying a different piece of wood and was nailed to that very piece of wood, was willing to be himself the temple brought to ruins and left in ruins as his body was ripped apart and as he was killed on the cross. But just as he said earlier in John's gospel, destroy this temple and in three days I will rebuild it. On the third day he rose from the dead and rebuilt the temple of God truly in himself. He is the temple and he is the true builder, the one who ultimately does build God's house. As he said in the Gospel of Matthew, I will build my church. This is the house that Jesus is now building, his church. And 1 Peter 2, 4 says that as you come to him, as we come to him in faith, we ourselves become part of that temple that Jesus is building. That we ourselves are being built like spiritual stones into this living, like like living stones into this spiritual house. So how do we build God's house today? We just present ourselves to Jesus as instruments to be used in his hands as he builds his church. There are two aspects of this, of how this building happens. You can kind of think of uh, depth and width, uh, purity and extent, better and bigger, health and growth. Um, So, for example, uh, purity would be seeking the unity of the church seeking to remove the idols of the church that, to make sure that God is actually the center of our worship, seeking to build up other Christians through the use of my gifts, my resources, my money, my talents, doing things like brewing coffee and putting up curtains and playing music and putting up signs outside to make the worship of God possible. We want to make it better. We want to make it purer. We want to build one another up so that we actually reflect the beauty and the glory that the house of God was designed to display. And yet we also want to make it bigger. We want more people to experience it. And this is done through evangelism and service. We speak the good news of God's temple, which has come to dwell among us, be destroyed, and be rebuilt. And we extend the good news of a picture of what it's like to live as part of God's house in the way we love and in the way we serve our neighbors around us. Do you have time for these things? Some say that I love Jesus and I'm into the whole Jesus thing, but I'm not as into the church. I'm not as into organized religion. My relationship with God is something that's between me and God, and I don't need other people or a, group or a body to legitimize those kinds of things. And look, if that's you, you have some good reasons to be suspicious of religion, right? And to be suspicious of organized bodies, because there is wacky stuff out there. And we've even gone over reasons earlier in this as to how what's going on here is different from a lot of what religion offers, But it it would be like the people of Israel saying, God, we want you, we just don't want your house. That's what it's like to say to Jesus, Jesus, I want you, but I don't want your church. Because Jesus says, I will build my church. Jesus says, this is my body, this is my bride. You don't get him without also getting his people thrown in. To reject the means of grace is to reject grace. For the people of Israel to not build the temple, God sees as a rejection, not just of the temple, but of him. 
And a rejection of God's people is ultimately a rejection of God himself. Do you have time for this? If not, what are you busy with? What is taking it up? Does it lead... Is it working? (laughs) Is it actually satisfying? Some of you are in a stage of life where you're making big decisions about where to live, about jobs to take, about the future of your family. What leads those decisions? Do you say, yeah, of course, whatever I do, I'm going to serve God and you know, that'll get taken care of. But what really matters? What really matters? What's the thing that's getting put in there? What's the thing that has to get taken care of first? What really seems pressing to you beyond serving the Lord and enjoying his presence? That stuff's not an afterthought. That stuff doesn't just happen magically while you prioritize a bunch of other things. And those other things you're prioritizing will not fill you. That's what this is saying. You were created for more. If, there, if you experience an appetite in you which nothing in this world can satisfy, it's because you were created for another world. As Augustine said, God, you have made us for thyself and our hearts are restless until they rest in you. God is worthy of your praise. God is worthy of your life and your time as your creator, but also in Christ, he's worthy of it as your redeemer as the one who came as the true temple, who was destroyed and laid in ruins and rebuilt again in three days. Come to him and be built. Apart from Christ's building, apart from him doing it, and us just being instruments in his hands, all of our building would be in vain. You're left just with religion. God, I'll do for you, but as long as you do for me. But if you come to Christ as the one who built God's house, in his life, death, and resurrection for you, you are accepted in him. Jesus is the one who obeyed the call to build God's house. We now build God's house not to get God's acceptance, but because we have God's acceptance in Christ. And it's only when you get that, it's only when that sinks in and starts to affect your heart that you're free to just present yourself as an instrument to Jesus to build his house because he's worthy of it to please the one who died for you. You have the time. Nothing else you give your time to will satisfy. Now is the time to build God's house.